So we've finished our series on the church at Ephesus, and this morning I just wanted to take a short break from our other series on church membership and just sort of make sure that our focus is on the Lord Jesus. And for various reasons, my mind has been drawn this week to one of my favorite passages of Scripture, if not, frankly, my favorite passage of Scripture. So I want to take a little time to walk through this text this morning with you, and we'll consider from the text the humility and exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all, I could ask most of you what you learned in English class during your freshman year of high school and I would get mostly clueless looks. It will have entirely had the details leave your mind. But if I began to play some song that was popular during your freshman summer uh, year, I don't doubt that many of us wouldn't be able to start singing along without ever missing a word. Because there is something about putting words to music, for good or bad, that improves our ability to recall those words. The major part of this text, from verse 6 through 11, the Apostle Paul appears to be using song lyrics in order to teach the church a lesson about Jesus, as well as their own call to be like Jesus. Think of this. As the earliest churches sought ways to take biblical truth and instill them into the hearts and minds of church members, it's evident that one of the means that they used to do that, and Paul encouraged this kind of use of music, was to sing songs that were lyrically beautiful and also theologically deep so that the deep theology about the truth of Jesus just became part of their heart and mind. In the original language, when you open and start reading at the beginning of chapter 2, it reads just like prose that is typical of the Apostle Paul And then when you get to verses 6 through 11, there is this dramatic shift in the text as it changes to a a rhythmic pattern. And this, this is not obvious in English because we're reading it translated. But the words and structure is unlike what we're used to seeing from Paul. So 
Throughout history, commentators of Scripture have, have disagreed about the meaning of some of these phrases, and we'll need to grapple with the meaning of some of these phrases. But hardly anyone questions that verses 6 through 11 consist of song lyrics. In his commentary on this text, Gerald Hawthorne writes, quote, There is at least one thing that calls forth almost universal agreement. It is that verses 6 through 11 constitute a beautiful example of a very early hymn of the Christian church. So through teaching this, as a song, it would have been held fast in the hearts and minds of believers. This song of Christ the Savior answers questions like, who is Jesus? Where did Jesus come from? Why did Jesus come? Was, was his mission for God successful? What happened to Jesus after his resurrection? What is it that the world can expect from Jesus in the future? Right? This beautiful song, this magnificent text, it begins with the glory of heaven and eternity past, and it continues on to the humility of Jesus being born into humanity. And then it follows along as he submissively serves and he obediently dies in apparent shame on the cross. And then sort of having plumbed the depths of the humility of the Lord Jesus, it turns to his exaltation. He rises from the grave. He ascends to the Father. He is reinstated to the splendor of heaven. And because of his glorious humility in coming so low, every man, woman, and child ever born, this says, must fall to their knees and proclaim his greatness. So our goal this morning is going to be to to walk through this text together to unpack some of the deep theology about what it means. But perhaps even more importantly, I want you, when we're done, to maybe feel what this means. Because a detailed study of these verses will not do anything for your head if it doesn't get through to your heart too. So these aren't dry facts that Paul is expounding. The words here should just break our hearts and bring us to tears and even in the process fill us with such adoration of Jesus that we can't help but lift our voices in praise of his beautiful name. And and before you think, oh, you know, Brother Jason, you're kind of going on a little bit here. Isn't it a little over the top? Let me assure you, it's not. That's not even the half of it. There are few passages of Scripture which, when you start to understand it in your heart, will just overwhelm you the way this one does. What's contained here when we honestly consider it are some of the most truly remarkable statements ever made. All at once, Paul is showing Jesus to be the most humble of all individuals and the most majestic and exalted name in human history. He's the lowest and the highest. He's meek and mighty. He is servant and master. He's humble and majestic. He willingly condescends. And when I use that word, understand I'm using it in a positive sense. He 
condescends. He lowers himself to be made like us. And yet in the process remains so much better as to be totally incomparable to us. In fact, this text will show that the humility of Jesus is such a beautiful act that it demands your love and your awe and your worship and your imitation. So we're going to spend most of our time in verses 6 through 11. But I want to make sure that you see in verse 5 why Paul is including this hymn into his text. If this song existed, and I don't think Paul wrote it, I think Paul is recording here something they already knew. This hymn existed in order to teach new Christians truths about Jesus. Then Paul's reasoning for quoting it is so that the Christians in Philippi would put what they know into practice. In some ways, he is using that song as the equivalent of a what would Jesus do bracelet, right? So let's take a moment to look at verse 5 because I don't want to abuse the text by ignoring Paul's reason for recording this song. So in verse 5, you'll see there is a command to copy Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind of Christ Jesus? Well, we'll read on and find that it's one of humble service and love. And every church is challenged to submit to one another in love, to love one another, to serve one another. Listen, nobody does that easily. Every church finds that to be a challenge. But I think the church at Philippi found it to be maybe more of a challenge than most. You can actually glance over at Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, and you'll see that there's, there's two women that Paul even felt the need to call out in the text. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. And he calls them out personally and essentially tells them to stop with their combativeness and to be like-minded. But if you just remember how the church at Philippi started, you'll know that this church Paul's writing to has its challenges, right? When, when Paul arrived in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, the first salvation story that's recorded there is of a Jewish businesswoman named Lydia that Paul and Silas and their group go down to the riverside and they, they preach to the Jewish women who would gather there and The Lord, it says, opened Lydia's heart so that she would believe. The next story that chapter tells us about is a demon-possessed slave girl who Paul exercises that demon in the name of the Lord Jesus, and she is saved. The third story that it talks about is when Paul and Silas get thrown into prison, the Philippian jailer, who was almost certainly a retired Roman soldier, the Philippian jailer and his family is brought to faith. Now, I don't know how much a rich Jewish businesswoman and a a poor idol-worshipping slave girl and a middle-class Gentile former Roman soldier have in common, but Paul commands them, just look back at the beginning of chapter 2. 
If there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you Look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Right? How can such diverse people find themselves like-minded? Well, the answer for the church at Philippi, and I assure you the answer for Beverly Manor Baptist Church today, is that every member of the church is to be focused on Christ, to so love him and know him and make him our our pattern and example that ultimately we find ourselves growing together as we grow closer to him. And so Paul urges them in verse 1, show mercy and affection. Verse 2, act in love. Verse 3, put away selfishness and consider the needs of others. Verse 4, work in the best interest of others. Now, when you think about that, is there anyone in history who is a perfect example of those things? Well, yeah, (laughs) it's the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, the church at Philippi apparently knows a song about the character of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says, you know, remember this song of Christ the Savior. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he writes down those lyrics they know that just sing off the page to them, a melody that's, that's already hidden in their heart. And so that's why Paul is using this, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. But mostly this morning, I want to concentrate on this song of Christ the Savior and see what it has to say about Jesus. Listen, we have to know him if we're going to have our minds be like his. And we are often so proud and make so much of ourselves that in the process, we lose sight of the Lord Jesus, the only person who really deserves to be made much of. He didn't have the attitude that we have. So look at the humility of Jesus in verses 6 through 8. Who, being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." My friends, you're not going to begin to wrap your mind around who the Lord Jesus was while on earth until you can really think about where it was that he came from and what he left behind in order to come to earth. The song starts there. It tells us of Jesus who, being in the form of God, Right When Jesus, the Son of God, 
was born into human flesh and laid in a manger. We talk about that and we call it the incarnation. But the song starts with the pre-incarnate Jesus residing in the glory and majesty of heaven as God himself. The Apostle John likes to speak of Jesus as the Word. And he starts his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In other words, Jesus has always existed. Jesus has always existed with God. Jesus has always existed as God. And everything was made by him, and nothing was made unless it was made by him. Jesus is the uncreated creator. He is the one who in the beginning said, let there be light, and light existed. Jesus, God the Son, is worthy of all the glory and majesty and honor and authority that is due to God alone. And for Jesus, God the Son, to lower himself in such humility as to be made like his creation, that is a step further down than you and I can even begin to comprehend. He knew what it was to be in glory. He knew what it was to have his majesty celebrated and worshipped in perfect unity with the Father and with the Spirit. And furthermore, Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, it is evident that he longed for a return to that glory and majesty. In his final prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed for himself in John 17, verse 5. And he said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. He wanted to return to that glory. What immeasurable humility it took for him to let go of that in the first place. And yet, let go of it is just what Jesus willingly did. In verse 6, it says that though he was in the form of God, he, quote, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Y'all, <coughs> that is a tough little phrase to translate. It literally means he did not consider it something to be grasped at. He did not consider that equality with God, that glory and majesty which was his by right. He did not consider it a thing to be grasped at, to be held on to, but he willingly let it go. Think of it this way. Think of whatever it is that you treasure the most in your life. It can be a person it could be a possession, whatever it is. If I came to take your greatest treasure away from you, what would your reaction to that be? It would be to 
hold on to it, to grasp at it, to desperately cling to it as long as you could. Jesus had every reason to cling and hold on to the glory and majesty of heaven, to grasp it tightly, and yet he willingly let it go. Verse 7 says he made himself of no reputation. Oh, (laughs) that little phrase has been so hotly debated and variously explained throughout Christian history. This little Greek word is kenosis, and it literally means to make empty. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. Well, what's that mean? What what is it that he emptied himself of? Did Jesus stop being God? I wouldn't mind if you guys filled in the pause with an answer there. You think Jesus stopped being God? Some folks argue for that. But if they examine the verse, Paul explains what he means by showing this is not about what Jesus stopped being. This is about what he willingly became. What he willingly became was a great emptying of glory and majesty because Paul says he took on to him the form of of a bondservant, and came in likeness of men. For Jesus to willingly let go of that glory and majesty, it doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God. In contrast, what he gave up was more about what he became in the process. Maybe it could be described something like a a king willingly divesting himself of majesty and of his royal estate and willingly walking through his domain in the role of a servant and yet all along he never stops being king he never abdicates his throne in the same way Jesus did not stop being God but he did become fully human and that was a great loss of glory and majesty that he endured y'all even that description isn't a good description because it's just not extreme enough. This great step in condescending, and again, I mean that in the most positive way, Jesus condescended to become human. The creator took on the form of the creation. And we would think at this point, well, oh, well, he must have. Certainly been one of the most grand of men. I mean, he's the son of God, so he must have taken on a form that was rich and handsome and respected and and well-loved by everyone. Well, no, he didn't reduce himself to being the level of the most celebrated man. The song describes these multiple steps of the humility of Jesus. In verse 7, it says he emptied himself to be a bondservant and to become a man in the likeness of man. And then look at verse 8. In verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. So having made that step, what did he do? He humbled himself. This humility is more than about Jesus the man in comparison to his position in, in glory and eternity past. 
This is saying he came all the way down and then in comparison to other men, he humbled himself. When you just honestly consider that, when you hear about the humility of Jesus, what what does it mean to you? What does it bring to mind? How does it affect you? There is this miraculous and, and marvelous thing that happens here and I don't think we spend enough time contemplating it fully Jesus who is God himself became human and do not for a minute think that that was like nothing to him there's one author named John Eldridge who says we tend to think of Jesus like he is Einstein visiting a first grade math class Right? We think of Jesus like he's Thomas Edison entering a grade school science fair. It's, it's almost cheating. We think of his humility like he's Superman, but willingly letting us tie his arms behind his back, but all the while, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We know what's really going on. Listen, this is not pretending. It's not like that. What does it mean for Jesus to humble himself, to become human, to be born. Can you, can you think of anything more humiliating than being a, a human baby? I know we look at them and we go, yeah, they're really cute, but they are entirely dependent. They are entirely helpless. They, they have to have the help of others. Sometimes, think of it this way. Sometimes as we grow older, we start to fret about coming to that kind of dependence and need. What does it mean that Jesus, God the Son, did this for us willingly? He was born an infant. He was a real human baby. All the limitations that came with it. Right? Somebody, somebody changed his diapers. I, I don't know how you, that makes you feel, but it's, it had to have happened. This is the all-powerful God who throughout history has given us witness of himself by doing good. He, He gives us rain. He gives us fruitful harvest. He provides for us our daily bread. And he was made an infant. It wasn't that long ago when we were at summer camp, I, I had a chance to be feeding Calvin mashed potatoes, right? And I'm just making sure not to give them too much, making sure they're soft, but shoveling those things in, and he got them if I gave it to him, and he didn't if I didn't. Jesus, the very God who made all things, who who gave us rain and harvest and provides our daily bread, Mary held God himself in her hands and fed mushed up food into his mouth. We said a moment ago that the Apostle John talks about Jesus by saying that he's the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the eternal Word. All truth from God has to be known through him. He is that Word of truth. The eternal Word was born and could not speak. He had to learn. He had to be taught, right? He he wasn't born with all the all the language of the Oxford English Dictionary in his head already as he's staring up from the manger. 
so that one day Joseph or Mary reading from scriptures to Jesus and helping him to learn the words, which, by the way, are his words, right? And you can imagine them saying, look, this is Isaiah. Can you say Isaiah? And this is where Isaiah describes seeing the Lord on the throne high and lifted up. Right? They could not understand that that child in their laps was the very Lord of glory who Isaiah was writing about. I mean, come on, he, he spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence with his own voice. And then he's born into humanity and he has to look up into the Galilean sky and be taught the words for sun, moon, and stars. John the Baptist talks about nobody being worthy to untie his sandals. Any of y'all remember being a kid or having kids? How much struggling do they do learning to tie their shoes? Jesus had to learn how to tie his little sandals on his little toddler feet. We assume he was a carpenter because Joseph was. And so (laughs) Jesus is taught carpentry. Right? Joseph, give him a block of wood and say, here, go pound on that for a while. You go outside in a clear night and you look up at the stars. Jesus is the designer of the universe. He is the almighty creator who made everything. Every tree and every forest is the creation of his fingertips. And then a humility comes and he's born into humanity and he has taught carpentry. Today, I'm going to teach you how to take one of those trees and make it into a box. Won't that be exciting? The things that God in the flesh experienced as human. The Son of God, who is God, right? Eternally strong, all-powerful, omnipresent. You can read through the Gospels and find that he got tired. It's almost unimaginable to think of God getting tired. And yet, here he is, is he's omnipresent and he is in all places at all times. He has divested himself of that majesty and, and glory and instead he, he walks to Samaria and he sits down at this well, hot and tired. The water that's in that well is water that he created. He could have turned it into a, a geyser, right? It would have been old faithful at the sound of his voice. And yet he sits there hot and tired until this Samaritan woman who he knows is going to be coming down at noontime comes down to, to that well and he looks at her and God himself says, can you please give me a drink of water? And while we're doing that, Why don't we talk about what brings you here for a while? In Mark's gospel, he is constantly working. There is so much demand on him to to teach and to bless and to, to heal and to hold babies and to visit homes. In Mark chapter four, there is a point where it describes the disciples, quote, taking him even as he was into the ship. Sometimes you read that and go, well, what does that mean, taking him even as he was into the ship? 
Well, as you continue reading the story, they go out into the sea and there is a storm that comes up and they're all scared to death. And there is one person who is asleep in the back of the boat. And the reason is, is because God, the son, worked so hard that he had to be picked up and carried and set down in the back of the boat so exhausted that when that storm comes, it doesn't even wake him up. Listen, this is not putting on a show. He was not pretending to be tired at that well. He wasn't laying in the back of the boat with one eye open playing a joke on the disciples. This is, this is genuine. It's real. It's almost unimaginable for God to have done this. Y'all, we don't, we don't grasp this and we hardly ever even think about this. There is no comparison we can make that can adequately describe the, the difference between the glory of God and the emptiness of humanity, but that's what Jesus did. He is to be glorified for more than just the humility of being made human, but it was that he became a man, and then what kind of man he became? Verse 7 says he took on the form of a bondservant, a slave, The very creator God came to earth and though he had every right of insisting on being served by his creation, he came to serve his creatures instead. He didn't come as a rich man, right? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't come as handsome. Isaiah says there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. He wasn't high society. His own disciples talked about where he came from. Like, can anything good come from Nazareth? He came as a loving son of a faithful mother and as the perfect son of his heavenly father. And all his life, he endured the slander of people saying, well, we weren't born of fornication. And pretend it didn't cause his heart to ache. He didn't have the respect of the people around him. He was hunted as a criminal for most of his ministry, right? And think of this, the the story of the Gospels starts with the story of a mass murder by Herod as he sends soldiers out to kill all the toddlers in Bethlehem hoping to murder Jesus and God provides Jesus as a family a way to escape into Egypt, but he still is hunted like a criminal, throughout his ministry. Don't make the mistake of thinking that it was just at the end of his ministry when he was finally arrested and crucified that people had had enough and decided to kill him. It's throughout the Gospels. Just listen to this. John John 5, verse 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. Mark 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. John 7, verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he could not walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Luke 4, 29, they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. He left 
the eternal glory of heaven <laughs> to be treated like that. And he did it for you and for me. That's his humility, and he didn't try to avoid it. So why is it that Jesus displays this kind of humility? Why does he empty himself in this way to divest himself of the glory of heaven and to be made like us? Hebrews 4.15 describes it, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he came to be like us so he could feel things like us, both physically and emotionally. So don't think that Jesus can't understand your frustrations. He had frustrations. Don't think that he can't sympathize with your pain. He felt pain. Don't think that he doesn't understand your heartbreak. Right? He cried over the rebellion of Jerusalem. He wept over the grave of his friend Lazarus. He understands. He knows your heartbreak because he's the creator of that heart. And he came and accepted a heart like yours and felt it break for himself. So many times we think about things and we go, well, you know, it's just impossible that nobody else really understands my feelings. As if our problems and situations cause us to be so misunderstood that nobody can relate. Right? I'm sure many of us have felt like we were just completely misunderstood and nobody really gets who we are. John 14 tells the story of Jesus being completely misunderstood and the people closest to him not understanding who he is. One of his closest disciples who had followed him for three years looks at Jesus in John 14 and essentially says, you know, if you would just show us God the Father, that would be enough. And exasperated, Jesus responded and was like, have I been with you for this long and you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let me assure you, of all people, Jesus understands not being understood. The feelings here and the, the, the fear that he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, the tears over the death of Lazarus, the humility of being made human, it is not a show. It's not a put-on. It's, this, this isn't you know, Edison entering a grade school science fair. This is real. And so when Jesus went to the cross... That was real. Do you think that he couldn't feel it? Did you think that knowing it was coming, it didn't cause him to be afraid? You imagine him to somehow be above the fear or impervious to the pain, right? He took humble obedience, verse 8 says, obedience to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It was real blood, that poured out of his wounds. It was real embarrassment for being, by being lifted up naked for all the world to see. Listen, those little toddler hands that struggled to learn to put on sandals onto his little toddler feet, they grew up into a man's hands, right? A perfect man who, who would walk on those feet for days in obedience to the Father's plan. 
He would use those hands to to touch lepers and to heal them, to to break bread and feed thousands, to, to lift broken people up from the ground whole. All human, all perfect, all real, the whole time. And so when they took nails and drove them through those hands and those feet, it was real pain that he felt. It was pain just like you or I would feel. As a matter of fact, it is the pain that you and I should feel. It's us that should have been forsaken, not him. When Jesus, the Son of God, came into the form of humanity, you know how perfect he was? Like, any of y'all who have had children, you ever had a point where you were just like, boy, that's my kid, they're so great, I'm so proud. <coughs> Twice the voice of God the Father boomed down from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that Son, obedient to death, took the place of the sinful people in whom the Father was displeased. And having taken our place, He experienced the rejection and the wrath that we deserved, right? Crying out in anguish and pain at being forsaken by the Father. Right? The depths of humility to which Jesus went to save sinners is beyond our understanding. And he did it so that all who believe in him would never have to experience that separation from God, that wrath that he endured. He humbled himself, not only to leave glory, but to become human. And not only to be human, but then he humbled himself to be a bondservant. And not only to serve, but he humbled himself even to the point of death, on the death of the cross. Made to be sin for us, so that all the sin of all his people was placed on Jesus, and he obediently and willingly endured God's wrath in our place. This perfect man became all that God so rightly hates in order to save those who God so graciously loves. This humility of Jesus makes him just the most glorious, beautiful, worthy person in human history. And as Paul quotes this song in our text, we see that the result of the humility of Jesus, the result of just the majesty of what Jesus did, leads to some actions by God and by humanity and by all creation. Look at the exaltation of Jesus, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humility of Jesus is so beautiful. It demands all creation bow down to him. In fact, it is humility so beautiful that God himself requires all all creation to bow down to him. 
Like, what else can you do when you think of what Jesus has done and you recognize that it's not pretending, it is just this genuine act of humility that instead of grasping and holding on to what was his by right, he let it go, he emptied himself, he divested himself of glory and willingly replaced it with being dependent and rejected and hated and hunted and treated like a criminal. Finally, being made to be sin for us. His lifeless body, after having died on the cross, got unnailed from the cross and laid dead in a borrowed tomb. Y'all, you have to consider what your reaction is to that because you simply cannot truly encounter this man without coming away stunned and amazed and, and completely love-struck with him. Understand what the text is saying here in verses 9 through 11. Your opinion of the work of Jesus is described in this song. Your view of his humility is an indication. It is a sure sign of your position with God. In light of what Jesus has done, God the Father has lifted up Jesus, his Son, as the standard by which all the world will be judged. Jesus rose from the grave as proof that the Father accepted how he lived for us and how he died for us. Jesus ascended to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And now God demands your adoration of Jesus, his Son. Verse 9 says, therefore, right, because of this, as a result of what Jesus has done, though he humbled himself, lowered himself, God has honored that by highly exalting him. The Bible consistently urges the children of God repeatedly, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, right? So when the perfect child of God humbles himself like no one else, that perfect child of God is exalted like no one else. Because of the work of Jesus and lowering himself in humility, the Father, this says, has raised him up and holds him as a standard for all people that the very mention of his name, everyone would fall to their knees and proclaim him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not only has God insisted on this kind of praise of Jesus, He has made it compulsory. In other words, my friends, you will do this. You will. You will fall to your knees and praise Jesus as Lord. I cannot assure you when you will do it, or where you will do it, or what your mindset will be when you do it, but I can assure you, you will do it. The text says every knee will bow, and if that's not specific enough, it even notes that all those in heaven, all those on earth, and all those under the earth, people in every conceivable place from every conceivable class, In heaven means those faithful saints who have died. 
like the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, or Jesus' mother, Mary, his adoptive father, Joseph, all of his disciples, every believer throughout the ages, every one of our saved friends and family who have gone on before, the whole host of heaven will gladly fall to their knees and proclaim Jesus as Lord. On earth means that those who are alive at his coming, whether that is believers awaiting the day where we can be united with him, or unbelievers who would rather hide from him, every knee on earth will bow to the earth and recognize Jesus as Lord. Under the earth means all those who have died in unbelief. From from Pontius Pilate to Hitler to, to Stalin to your unbelieving neighbor. From the depths of hell itself, they will be on their knees and admit that Jesus really is Lord. God the Father is so pleased by what Jesus has done. And Jesus is so deserving of this praise that nobody gets left out. And so you will fall to your knees and proclaim Jesus as Lord to the glory of God. You can do it in this life by repenting of your sins and entrusting your faith and love towards him, or you can die in your sins and you will still fall to your knees in the eternal torment that comes after this. Either way, from your knees, you will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. In his life, Jesus, the Son of God, performed this beautiful display of humility and love unlike anything the world has ever seen or ever will see. And it demands your respect and your love and your adoration and your faith. You must fall to your knees and worship him. Y'all, this is a text that our minds should memorize because it teaches us deep truths of things that we should know about Jesus. It's a text that our heart should embrace because it teaches us the reasons why it is that we ought to love Jesus. It's a text our lives should be modeled to. It tells us how we ought to live for Jesus. Oh, we get so proud and full of ourselves. But Paul says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You can see, I think, why the early church would use this text as a song. The song of Christ the Savior is a song worth singing.